I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Welcome to the London Review Bookshop podcast. To find out about our upcoming events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. Good evening and welcome to everyone. Um, Devorah, uh, your books, um, Feeling Jewish and the Jewish Joke. They are, among other things, um, fascinated by fate and translation. With your husband, the filmmaker Josh Opinionacy, you have co-directed, produced, and performed in the films The New Man and Husband. Both investigate and are inspired by marriage, in particular, your own marriage. There are films that see marriage as anything but a fixed territory. Before these works, in your essays and articles and in our conversations, and even in your bridal speech, which is the best bridal speech, I think, in history, uh, you have been thinking about the subject, about what it is or what it might be like to make a life together. You have always, you've al- al- always been open about the secret that none of us know how to do it, that to be married is to be constantly trying to figure it out. We are friends, old friends. We are friends also with one another's spouses, who are in turn friends. Marriage, one way or another, has been one of our spoken and unspoken topics. And we have been learning and failing and succeeding, one way or another, side by side. And so I have read your book, as have all of your work, with great keenness and admiration, but also a deepening impression I'm impressed by how abiding you are. I'm impressed by how open and courageous, how persistent and free. I admire your book's intelligence and wit and its deep reading and deep looking and listening that it applies to the ancient subjects. Marriage has rarely been attended to with such care and breadth, but also with such learning. And on a subject that has to do with fidelity, your book is deeply promiscuous. It attends to the work of, among many other authors, Theodore Adorno. And believe me, this is really an abbreviated list. Huh? Uh, Theodore Adorno and Jane Austen, Samuel Beckett and Egmar Bergman, Maurice Blanchot and Roberto Balanio, Albert Camus and Jack Derrida, George Eliot, Ralph Waldo Emerson, Elena Ferrante and Sigmund Freud, 
You look at Goethe and Henry James, Emmanuel Levinas and Karl Marx, Javier Marias, Alice Munro and Zadie Smith, Oscar Wilde and Virginia Woolf. And this is not to mention all the other works of philosophy, fiction, poetry, music, film, and TV series that you look at, gleaming possibilities of what marriage is and could be. And the book houses, I think, its hopes and anxieties, its fears and its enthusiasms for its subject, partly in its insatiable intellectual appetite. And I thought maybe appetite is a good place to start um, and ask you perhaps to cast your mind back to the moment when you first thought of writing this book and tell us something about what you then thought that you were doing. <laughs> Thank you so much um, for that. That was amazing. Um, I don't know if we need to go on from there. <laughs> uh, so, um, well, it was amazing because uh, the book was proposed to me. There's Simon. Hi, Simon. So Simon uh, was actually, uh, it was proposed to me by Simon, who, said, who I had just returned uh, from officiating at a wedding, a wedding in, in uh, my sister-in-law and my brother-in-law. I turned the brother-in-law into my brother-in-law. Officially, I did it myself by uttering words uh, at, uh, at their wedding. I was the officiant because in the state of Massachusetts, you can uh, get licensed as a one-day solemnizer and you can do stuff like that. So I, um, I had just married some people myself. So I must have been emanating a kind of strange marital power <laughs> that I, I appeared capable of marrying people. And, and, uh, and somehow I was talking about that. I'd been thinking about it. Uh, I'd been thinking about it very hard before I married them. How should I do it? What should I say? Hmm. What are they up to here? Also because, you know, they're very progressive people. They're feminists. They're Marxists. They're not, they're not people who obviously fit into a kind of traditional patriarchal mm. system. And so, and so uh, I've been trying to work out how to get them into it and in a way that would, would feel right and feel abiding. So, so, so that had just happened. And then Simon uh, proposed this book to me. And I was taken aback and taken by surprise. But I realized that I am really quite traditional and I need to be proposed to. So, so uh, it, I, I mean, I'm genuinely not somebody who comes up with my own proposals. So, I, so I'm just essentially waiting for proposals the whole time. And, and, uh, and so it really um, excited and inspired me. But also worried me, obviously, because proposals are quite worrying. Because I wondered, well, why should I? I didn't know that was my book to write. And so then I started thinking about it. And then I noticed that Simon is brilliant. And mm -hmm. that he had noticed something about me that I hadn't noticed about myself, which was that I am very involved in the marriage plot. And uh, that my mother... Uh, was a marriage, what was called in the, the, the old days, which is my youth, <laughs> a marriage guidance, uh, counselor. That was her job. And, uh, that my parents, uh, were very, very married. And that all of my, 
friend's parents were married and that uh, all of my family, my wider family were married and essentially divorce didn't show up into my world until I went to university. <laughs> I didn't meet, I somehow naturally gravitated towards friends who confirmed the marriage plot along with my own. So I was somehow consistently reproducing a picture of the world in which marriage was a very happy, sustaining and successful thing. And it, it was much... Um, it was much later on that I realized, oh, not everybody has that, has that view. So, uh, somehow I was really reinforcing this ideology to myself in a very unconscious way growing up. And it never occurred to me that I would, I, I couldn't see my future at all, but the one thing I knew about it was marriage. Mm. That was definitely something I was, I was headed for. And so the only question I had, I didn't have any questions about marriage. Would I, you know, is marriage good? Is marriage bad? Would I do it? I only thought, well, who, who do I do it with? That was my only question. And, um, and I was getting a bit worried about that because it didn't look obvious. <laughs> and, uh, and so, you know, but essentially that was kind of my only kind of, uh, uh, venture into the world. And I, I just really, I mean, I really am and was kind of that person. Uh, then something started happening where I, I started getting gigs. At friends' weddings, I was sort of, I was somehow, I, I was, I, I was making speeches at a, bu- a bunch of weddings, uh, and then I had my own wedding, which I had sort of railroaded my husband, who is lying behind the till, um, for. We don't want to talk about that now, um, but, but it's true. He's lying behind the till, so, um, and. Um, <laughs> Uh, then, um, so then I somehow, uh, I, I found the perfect match for me, which was what I needed was someone who didn't want to marry me because that was the only way I could break this consciousness that I had. Mm. So, so I found someone who really didn't want to marry me <laughs> and tried to persuade him into it. <laughs> and, and, um, because he had a very different story about, divorce, about relationships not working, all his friends, all their parents would, he'd done the same thing but in the opposite as me, he didn't know anybody happily married <laughs> and he didn't know any friends who had happily married we'd both done the same thing and then and so we met each other and found there were two world views on this yeah. <laughs> so the arguments began and so in a way almost from the word go in my relationship with my now husband because I won uh, the the, um, the we were almost always at some subliminal level arguing over whether or not marrying could work. And, and, and so I think that was the beginning of our long engagement. And then, uh, then, yeah, at our wedding, I, I thought again and I made the speech. I, I'm, uh, is this too long an answer? Not I, no, <laughs> I realize I am going on, oh, but, so but nice. then, then after our wedding, I thought that the deal was done essentially, but no. No. <laughs> it continues actually after yeah. the wedding and marriage. So it's it starts. <laughs> yeah. yeah. It really starts yeah. um then things get serious. So yeah. then you're like, oh no, I'm totally committed to this. Yeah. And at some t- and there are uh, moments when it's just awful. And what am I gonna do about that now? Yeah. And um and and then various other um other things happened. But I gotta save something for my speech later. So, <laughs> save nothing. Um, yeah. The fact that a marriage is a work in progress—that is something that starts rather than ends, right? At, at the wedding, is something that 
is all over the book because the book is thinking about how a marriage is worked out and thought about, right? And um, I certainly, I like to think I'm not alone in this, but I, I certainly assumed that marriage was this stable condition, that it is the end of insecurity and wondering, right? Or actually, in my case, it was the beginning of, of thinking about what a life might look like and what questions of collaboration might look like, right? And the couple, the, the original couple, at least in the Abrahamic tradition, is uh, Adam and Eve are very much alive in your book. And you think about them uh, quite interestingly, but also the structure of the book seems to take them in a, in, into account in some way, right? So you have these six sections. I'm just going to read out the title because the titles of these sections, Marriage as Philosophy, Marriage as Creation, Marriage as Conversation, Marriage as Entertainment, Marriage as Religion, and Marriage as Afterlife. So I was wondering whether you thought that given their predicament, you know, given that they were they came into the world where the stakes couldn't have been higher. They really needed to know what was right and what was wrong, what was permitted and what was not. And everything depended on that. And they had to somehow do it together. Now, whether you think that's, that casts a certain kind of shadow on, on our thinking about marriage and about whether marriage, I mean, is marriage, does marriage have to be a sort of mode of survival? I think in the case of Adam and Eve, they had a really good thing going because they were in paradise, uh, which sounds great. And, and, um, and then, and seemingly they were sort of frolicking, having a perfectly good time there. And then, uh, some kind of knowledge, knowledge entered the picture, mm. which, because they covered their genitals, it seems to be coded as a kind of sexual knowledge. Uh, but, well, the way I read it is, 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 is not necessarily that they came into sexual knowledge. I think they came in that moment into their sexual ignorance. Something happened, uh, that caused them to realize that in these matters, in the matters of sex, sexuality, desire, they have a fundamental ignorance, um, to them that, that brought on a kind of sense of shame and covering and a covering up. And I think that they decided to essentially tie their knots uh, at the moment when their relationship wasn't working. <laughs> so mm. the moment when they started blaming each other, you know, so, 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 so Adam says, oh, she made me do it. You know, he's decided to cover himself with what he, he, he's persuaded himself is the truth. He thinks yeah. so. So the truth becomes the cover story of man in that story. Mm. It's like I walk around and I tell the truth, and the truth is she made mm. me do it. And uh, and then and so then the sort of covering of their bodies and the sort of comes together with a kind of failure to cover for each other. Mm. And something happens in that moment where they're sort of sent off into a kind of exile together, away from paradise and 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 marriage becomes linked, I think, from the, in our sources with a story about the need for privacy and the need for sort of not having that glare of, of, of omnipotence and omniscience that God has mm. over them and to wanting to sort of escape, mm. escape the world in some way. And I think from the word go, we have this story about marriage as an attempt to 
to have a private life. As if without it, one couldn't in some way. As if, as if marriage is an agreement to cover, yeah. to find ways of covering for each yeah. other. Uh, and so, uh, I'm, I've yeah. lost. I'm, no, no, but yeah. that's a, because you say also that, that, you know, everything God created is good <laughs> apart from being alone, right? So you mustn't be alone. Uh, you must find companionship. Uh, in, in, in a marriage. And so marriage, in a sense, when I was reading your book, I was thinking marriage is both, you seem to be thinking about marriage as both being a way to, of not being alone, but also a way of being alone. That, yeah. yeah. I think there's a kind of separation from God in that moment, yeah. actually. And, 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 and uh, God says everything is good, this is good, that's good, all things are good, I've done it really well, it's all excellent. And then he, God says, it is not good for man to be alone. So then this, the, the first not good thing becomes this condition of loneliness. And then so God creates yeah. woman. Uh, and the prob- there's prob- historical problems right there in that sort of creation story because, first of all, in that moment we get the idea of woman as service provider for man. Mm. Second of all, in that moment, we get a real pathologization of single life, where, mm. where somehow single life is, 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 is deemed not good. Mm. And, um, and third of all, uh, uh, the, the idea that, um, that the couple is the solution to this question uh, seems to uh, foreclose many other solutions we might have mm. to that question of loneliness. Uh, but at that moment, there's been a kind of severance between... This, somehow something has split off and the couple really have split off from, uh, the rest of creation and the rest of the world yeah. as if they're off to do something on their own mm. that nobody gets to see. And I feel the whole history of marriage, the reason it's quite hard to think about marriage mm. is you really can't see into it. You can't see into people's marriages. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and so something ex- extraordinarily secret is going on there. Yeah. A secret yeah. that people, even in their marriages, keep from themselves. They yeah. can't even, they don't even know what's going on themselves. Yeah, yeah. And you think of it also as a, a way of leaving the world in this sense, but also leaving your family. That The best way to leave your family is to get married. Well, it's the... I mean, it's one of the main paradoxes, right? The, yeah. the, the uh, marriage traditionally is the way particularly women get to, uh, get, daughters get to leave their fathers yeah. and, get, and get taken over yeah. by, the, by these husbands whose name they then, they have their father's name. Now they've got uh, a new man's name and that, and that seems to have uh, made that transition. So marriage is one way out of the family, out of the home. On the whole, people don't marry members of their family anymore that much um, um, and and it's one of the most radical things I mean it is yeah. such a radical thing yeah. marriage yeah. when you think about it that people m- people meet someone who aren't even members of their family yeah. and they marry them which is yeah. crazy yeah. why would you do that with a complete stranger you're yeah. not even related to them and then yeah. Yeah. and then you marry them and you tie yeah. your fortunes to yeah. them you like do you like like yeah. Come on, let's do this until death together. That's yeah. the that's the thing. It's quite wild, yeah. uh, but it's one way out. It's one way yeah. out of the family. Yeah. But of course, then the problems uh, uh, turn up. So you think you've left the family, and then it turns out 
you haven't left the family. So, <laughs> so uh, a lot of the a lot a lot of the problems in 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 people's marriages, particularly I think early on, tend to be because they haven't left their families, yeah. and the families that they're really fighting over different sort of family family ideas, family philosophies. They both feel bound to their families very often yeah. in in different ways, yeah. and that argument. Which is to do with the possession to actually really leave the family. I think take, happens much later in marriages if mm. people can get that far. Mm. But also, people reproduce their families, yeah. so uh, they leave their family in order to reproduce their family. And a lot of you know they think they're going to be different, and then particularly, I have to say, when children show up, you find out you are your parents, and it's shocking. Mm. Uh, uh, but but it, but it but it very often happens that. That you think you've left your family, and mm-hmm. and it's actually only in your marriage that you find out who your family are. Earlier today, I thought um, I was I was present at your wedding um, and heard that speech that I mentioned, and we were all blown away by it. It was incredible. And today was the first time that I listened to it again uh, since that day, and it's even better. Um, and in it, you say. Only someone who can bear to be in the wrong can bear to be in love. And your 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 book is wondering about this enthusiasm, right, in marriage, um, enthusiasm to be right, and how do you occupy the role of being wrong in, in them? No, the, this is. I mean, this is. Uh, there's plenty of things I should say that are wrong about marriage mm. <laughs> historically. Mm. Currently, uh, in mm. in lots of manifestations, but each marriage, I think, is its own thing. And I'm a fan of romantic comedy, so I really yeah. love that genre. I've always loved that genre. And the thing I really like best about it is the pleasure that the people in it seem to be taking in finding their opposite an equal number. They seem to be taking tremendous pleasure. In finding someone who proves them wrong the whole time, yeah. so so uh, you know that if you uh, if you're with somebody and you're endlessly in the right and they're always in the wrong, that do- that just doesn't sound like much fun. It just doesn't <sighs> sound like much fun. So, having researched this subject, I would say that marriages probably do require a sense of humor, uh, and yeah. that uh, ro- that romance. Ideally, should be a comedy of some kind, yeah. and uh, particularly over the long term, you've got to really keep finding uh, uh, sources of amusement, ways of amusing each other. But one of the things you have is, um, I mean, you you have so much material on each other. I mean, yeah. you really have a yeah. lot of material, and and so I, I mean, you really have the you, you really have the opportunity to have fun and be funny with yeah. each other because. There's so much material. You've seen each other in in the in the least sort of flattering light, mm. and managed to continue with that. And so and mm. so and so, uh, finding each other as a sort of balancing of, and rebalancing of the scales in the way that mm. humor and repartee at its best is always sort of so interested in this sort of is so uh, similar to justice yeah. because it doesn't work. It doesn't work really. It's not. Re- I don't really think a sense of humor really works very well. Unless people can really keep finding their balance with each other, and then you keep things going, and that's always, that's never about pr- being proven right. That's always mm. showing how each other are wrong, and that's the pleasure principle, right? Mm. So, so, so mm. it's an education mm. in being wrong in a way that you can have an appetite for. Yeah, yeah. 
The other thing I was thinking about today is, is um, how, you know, there are, there are certain, um, I quite like those writings, as you know, but there are certain theologians who think about the reasons why, they ask this very simple question, why are Adam and Eve cast into trouble? No. The obvious reason is to test them. But some propose, actually, it's not only to test them, that involved in the act of creation is trouble, because trouble animates. So I was thinking about that, about your book, because it arrives at a specific moment in our culture where our ideas about marriage are, I would say, maybe it's putting it too strongly, but they're in crisis, I would say, or, or we have very legitimate doubts about it. And so if you think about your book being animated by the trouble that we're in, can you imagine in what ways it might be? Well, I, there's so many ways I could interpret that question. I mean, I mean, I suppose for me, when I when I think about the trouble we're in in the broadest and the biggest terms, our survival is we're in trouble plan, on a planetary level. Okay. We might not survive, and uh, our species might not survive. Our planet might not survive in its current form. Uh, that's genuinely the trouble we're in. Mm. Uh, so um, I think, um, look, marriage is. Is, has been in the modern period on a downward, less and less people are doing it. Uh, less and less people are doing it for very good reasons. In 2020, partly due to lockdown restrictions, there were more divorces in this country than there were marriages. Uh, so there's a kind of trend that, um, uh, it, it was partly because weddings were getting postponed, yeah. but also lockdown was unbearable for, yeah. for a lot of marriages, and so there were a lot more divorces. Uh, so in a way, you could say, oh, marriage, like the rest of our, our civilization is headed for, for extinction. But marriage has always come in and out of fashion. And recently, there's been an absolute resurgence of romantic comedies on uh, TV, in literature, in cinema. So people are still very interested in romance. And, uh, and, I, and then uh, the husband behind the till... Um, told me, uh, no, no, he spotted an ad on Tinder, he's an, a Tinder ad, I'm sure, in, very innocently spotted it, and, um, and, and it was on TV, and he said um, that he noticed that Tinder used to be advertised, I think, as a good time hookup dating app, but this particular ad that's on at the moment says that um, if you sw- swipe right, you might wind up with your toothbrush in their bathroom, like it could head to that kind of, that situation might result. So uh, so even Tinder seems to be moving in the direction of worrying about or realizing that people are worried about the long term. Mm-hmm. And so I think one of the troubles we're in is we're frightened that there is no long term. We're frightened about uh, promises. We don't trust the promises uh, that certainly that being made to us by sort of politicians and, and various mm. other, and we're feared of 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 a life that has no, no commitments mm. uh, in it. So I think one of the ways in which I might expect marriage to make a kind of comeback now is because I think it does does model a kind of life form in which people are prepared to tie certain knocks and risk a kind of unknown future together, mm. risk. A kind of unknown future together, and and so um, 
I think that's one of I think yeah. that's one of the responses, and I think probably a less a completely human and understandable thing about marriage, but that is uh, sort of less uh, flattering about it, mm. is that um, people want to hide away, uh, and mm. marriages are really if it works if if it's if you've got one that works, it's a place you can hide from the world, and the world is unbearable increasingly, mm. and there's a kind of way in which marriage permits a kind of infancy for those involved, where they sort of return to a kind of infantile uh, way of being. And I think uh, that definitely has its attractions because the world, the adult, grown-up world in which we have to strive and try to make a difference really is unbearable. Um, do you want to read to us? Read. Yeah, oh, do you feel then. like reading? Should or? I do the reading? No, only, only if you feel like um, it. Well, uh, yeah, I should read. <laughs> we discussed this, didn't we? <laughs> we discussed the possibility. Of we discussed yes, the yes, possibility. Yes. Um, so we're able, actually, we, the bit that was discussed that I might read, mm. I think I need to pre, I need to preamble it a bit because um, it's in um, each section. The section, for example, this comes towards the end of the book. The section marriage is religion. And, um, and, and each section has two chapters, and this chapter is called My Heart Belongs to Daddy. So I suppose one of the kind of overarching concepts of this chapter is the patriarch. Marriage is a sort of patriarchal institution, but how do we really feel about these patriarchs, really? And, um, and, uh, that, so the first part of this book, I look at, I discuss uh, Fiddler on the Roof and because mm. that sort of comes from the perspective of an old world patriarch who's very bothered by his daughters with modern appetites, with desires to make their own marriages, their own love matches mm. for themselves and he wants to control them and he sees his tradition and his authority is, is sort of falling away uh, beneath him. And I'm interested in how he has sort of, there's nothing about him that really is justifiable and and yet, I, as an adult, I saw this film. Uh, as a child, I saw this film, and I have one reaction. But as an adult, I saw this film, and I noticed I quite fancied him. That was all. And then, which weird, if actually you see Fiddler on the Roof, it's not what everyone would feel, but I did. And then, um, oh, there's the husband laughing. Did you catch that? that was, <laughs> and then, so so I think you need to know that before I move to then. So so then, religion, authority, tradition, the old world, the patriarch. That's that bit. Mm-hmm. And he looks straight to camera. So then I moved to a, a modern incarnation of uh, a look-straight-to-camera protagonist, which is um, Fleabag, Phoebe Waller-Bridge's TV series, where there's a lot of eye-to-eye contact with us, the viewer. And uh, she would seem to have replaced the patriarch in the center of the frame. And she seems uh, to be in a very liberated, emancipated world for women. And that seems to be uh, characterized by the amount of sex she's having. And also, she's very good at obscenity. She likes to speak in obscenities. So I just feel you need to know all that if you didn't know all that already. Um, and then I'm moving to, again, the return of religion in a way to this in uh, the second series where she's uh, fallen in love with um, a Catholic priest, uh, which, as you know, in romantic comedy, you, your love object has to be impossible in some way. And uh, she's fallen in love with a Catholic priest. So that's where I'll take it from. Okay, people? Okay. So um, uh, so it isn't just that the priest, qua priest, is unavailable and therefore the ideal love object for a genre which always needs an obstacle to work with. 
There's also another slight disturbance regarding this choice of lover, and that's because what seems to really be animating Fleabag's attraction to her priest isn't so much his indulgence of verbal obscenity, it's the more unnerving fact that she gets to call him, excitedly because it's a turn-on, father. Yikes. What she's fallen for is very explicitly a patriarchal figure, a figure prohibited to her not just by religion and not just by the incest taboo, but by feminism too. Finally, towards the end of the second series, we get the scene we've been waiting for. Fleabag falls into the arms of her priest in an act rendered all the more sacrilegious because she tumbles into those arms from her position in a church confession booth. Yet as captivating as it is to watch a sexy cupping, sexy couple, (laughs) a sexy couple getting it together, it's always, it's always captivating to see that. This moment of their inevitable clinch is also a moment of profound misrecognition. Indeed, just beforehand, we see Fleabag addressing the priest from inside the confession booth, a wall of darkness still dividing them. However, when she calls him father, He encourages her instead to use his personal name, Neil, N-E-I-L. Fleabag, though, mistakes his meaning and interprets his invitation as a command, Neil. And with that, she gets down willingly upon her knees. Well, it was an easy mistake to make when you consider that what she was just confessing is that she can't bear her freedom, that she wants to be told, as the wife in the traditional wedding ceremony was told, to obey So Neil sounds like an answer to her prayers, perhaps even more than the relationship-altering Neil she'd thought until this point she had been praying for. Is this, then, what for the emancipated woman turns out to be her greatest sin, that she despises her freedom and misses her bondage and would like someone, a man, a father, to tell her exactly what she can and can't do, also that she doesn't have to be the one tying herself up in knots? Tevier, that's Tevier the milkman from Fiddler on the Roof, who I fancy, tells us that tradition is a way of knowing who one is and what's expected. And Fleabag, from her perch in the far-flung future, seems to get what's so appealing about that, possibly even more than his own daughter's. So while we've come a long way with Fleabag from the traditional heroine of the marriage plot, her heart, it would seem, belongs no less to Daddy. As such... Fleabag's a TV series that presents us with an uncomfortable image of where woman is envisaged to still be at her most comfortable, abjectly on her knees, begging to be dominated. A perspective rendered all the more uncomfortable on account of the series' popularity. For Father Neil no sooner appeared as Fleabag's love interest than he was quickly identified by the show's legions of online fans as the hot priest a phrase that seems to take perverse pleasure in the maddening contradictions that can so often put one's desires at odds with one's professed morality or taste or politics. There's what I think and there's what I feel. There's who I like and there's who I love. And in the case of this particular object of desire, a sworn celibate who exudes maximal sexual appeal, a man who represents divine love but who inflames ardor of the worldliest kind, One is, of course, returned as well to the psychoanalytic conception of the sort of desire that involves a structure of fantasy that's essentially nostalgic, the object evoking the dream of a past that was all fulfillment and thus seeming to promise as well a future that could recover such bliss. On which basis we might well ask if there's any desire that could reasonably lay claim to being wholly progressive. 
You can't marry your own father and you can't marry a Catholic priest. More's the pity. But a rom-com must end with a wedding. And in the case of Fleabag, it's the wedding of her real father who marries her rivalrous and self-centered stepmother. The hot priest is the wedding officiant, which is the capacity in which he renews his own vows of fidelity to God, while Fleabag, better able now to correctly interpret his meaning, can understand the coded message of her own rejection. Indeed, what his figure seems finally to represent isn't his own marriageability, but marriage's ability itself. Marriage, that is, as the obscure object of a desire whose best, best representative would be a hot priest. I've been there. So, if marriage is a hot priest of an institution, maybe that's why even those people who don't approve of it so often find themselves doing it. It's as if there lies abroad some vague inkling that it's marriage's singular ability to conjugate those things within us that cannot otherwise abide in a world with no patience for contradictions, such as love and hate, morality and obscenity, the orthodox and the liberal, the secular and the religious. Indeed, insofar as it can even wed the tradition that tells us who we are with the desire that unravels who we are, marriage, one could go so far as to say, makes the wedding of our conflicts and contradictions its most vital and pressing point. Life is full of what-ifs, some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out-of-pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what-ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. We have a bit of time for questions. Oh, is that, is that what you Devorah, I think this is a stunning book, but then I would say that. Yeah, we but, should admit our relationship, we? <laughs> no, no, no. Unnecessary. But, but I, I really wanted to hear you talk a little bit about... I guess what's partially contained in the first chapter of the book, which is this notion that, that, uh, philosophy actually is, uh, not the desire or the love of knowledge, but the knowledge of love and how those two things, you know, interact. Yeah. So, 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 so what's one of the extraordinary, thank you. My mother-in-law, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, so, <laughs> um, some would say I married him to marry her. You never know. So, um, so, so no, I know. I love him. So, but, um, but he is behind the till. But anyway, I forget that. One of the fascinating things, and I, I probably should have said this up front, one of the fascinating things about marriage as a subject, this is what really, when I sunk my teeth into this subject, this was one of the things that excited me when I noticed it, was that um, marriage is everywhere and nowhere. Marriage is the dominant uh, plot of most of the literature I was raised on reading. I mean, the marriage plot is absolutely 
uh, uh, dominant in structuring narratives, even if you have a thriller or whatever, somehow mm. there's normally one going on underneath it, as mm. if it's sort of needed there as a kind of congeal a story to make you, to make you have the desire to follow mm. through on a story. Still today, I think in this world, even with, even with marriage on the decline, People are defined, their own lives are defined in relationship to this institution. Are you married? Are you, what's your relationship status? Are you married? Are you single? Are you unmarried? Are you divorced? Are you widowed? What are you in relationship to marriage? And somehow you, in some weird way, have to justify yourself in, in relationship to this institution, which makes it a real menace for a lot of people, I think. Uh, but even for the people who are, who are married, it sort of presumes they know what they're up to in some, in some way, that it has a kind of definite sort of proposition. And so, in both life and literature, marriage is a very dominant plot. Mm. So you would expect to find it. And also, there is no recorded human history of any time preceding marriage anywhere in the world. We have no recorded chronicles of human life yeah. that doesn't contain some sort of marriage sort of contract, yeah. some sort of idea of marriage. Yeah. So we really can't think before it or beyond it very easily. So you would imagine philosophers would have mm. gone at it in the same way they've gone a little bit at love and a lot at death. I mean, they've mm. really had a, a, their time with death. So, um, uh, but no, it is mm. almost absent, I think, uh, from philosophy. You do find it. There are philosophers who make a case, who make, who make, who make it a source of interest. Kierkegaard in particular, mm. uh, uh, the late great Stanley Cavell, uh, did a lot of work on this. Um, and of course, feminism is very interested in it, uh, mm. for a very particular reason. And, uh, queer theory is also very interested in a very particular reason in, in more recent work. But in terms of sort of the history, the canonical history, particularly of the Western philosophy I know best, mm. is, is barely there. And when it is there, it's very sort of, awkwardly introduced mm. uh, so as if it's a subject of embarrassment as if it's something that you can't think uh, and I began to think about how marriage is something but the philosophers who do think about it certainly don't do it Kierkegaard doesn't do it Kant doesn't do it uh, uh, Schopenhauer doesn't do it Nietzsche doesn't do it, but they do think about it as though when you think mm. about it, you can't do it. Mm. Uh, and, um, which is fascinating. Mm. And certainly George Eliot, when she writes Middlemarch, seems to be making a case that marriage is something you can only really think after the case. Or, you mm. know, you can't, only, mm. you, you can't it's, it's not abstract. You can't yeah. think of it beforehand. And so to do it, you can't think it. Mm. Um, so I introduce an idea from our, our favorite philosopher, Emmanuel Levinas, this is a, a discussion about something else, but he talks about the idea of the philosopher as somebody who sort of thinks about everything and can't act, can't make any decision, can't mm. act, tempted by all the temptations, but basically just sort of stuck in a position of contemplation, mm. uh, never really able to sort of enter into the world and all its murk and muck and confusion. And so uh, he thinks about another way of doing philosophy, uh, which is to uh, say yes first, to do, to do what is proposed, yeah. and then think about it. Yeah. Have a think about it afterwards, which is what I've done. But this goes together. I think this is coupled to, together with uh, Levinas' contention that the translation, the true translation of philosophy, the Greek term, mm -hmm. uh, should not be... Um, I don't know, I'm addressing this to you, I'm addressing this to you, so it should not be the love of knowledge. Plato famously in Symposium comes out with the, the idea that the philosopher, the greatest love of all, the lifelong love until death is the love of knowledge, is the love of wisdom, but the real translation should be the knowledge of love, which for Levinas becomes a sort of the idea that instead of asking us what is 
what is what is being and, yeah. and so on. Our real question should be an ethical one. You know how to be with each other, mm. how to behave, and uh, uh, and how to share how to share and how how to live alongside others. I think that would be certainly George Eliot's contention too. That for for good for good or for for better or for worse, and it really is for better or for worse. Yeah. Marriage, you do get a kind of knowledge. You get you do find out stuff about love. Hi, Devore. Um, managed to read the first chapter of the book in the <laughs> between buying it and the beginning of the uh, talk, and <clears throat> I loved how much Shakespeare there was in it. And it seems to me that marriages have a bit of a blind spot in Shakespeare's universality. Like, um, we don't see many happy marriages in Shakespeare and in his marriage plots. They seem to culminate in very bad pairings. We can't imagine Benedict and Beatrice are really going to get on very well. As you say, the pairings at the end of A Midsummer Night's Dream seem, I believe you use the word fungible or interchangeable to describe them. And what is Shakespeare's problem with marriage? <laughs> Just to reassure the rest of you, I do get to flee bag later on. <laughs> um, I do. Yeah, I am. Um, I think the, the I want to the start of the book does go into philosophy, and it does go into yeah. There's a bit of. I, I just want to. I'm trying to sell the book. So uh, there, there is Shakespeare. I admit there's Shakespeare. There's a bit of Milton. There's a tiny bit of Milton. <laughs> you do get Jane Austen. You get George Eliot. That, that's all up there at the front. That, that's all there. I can't deny Henry James is in it either. But um, but um, but but there, but we move towards uh, a more contemporary uh, literature and film and television. And it gets increasingly personal. And I think marriage too, I think I realized writing the book that, uh, for, for me too, marriage sort of began as something a bit more abstract, a bit more philosophical. I was trying to work out mm-hmm. how to do it, what it is. And I moved towards something a bit more contemporary and personal, uh, in, in, in my marriage. So that's how the book goes. It's harder at first. It gets easier. Stick with it. But you do need the Shakespeare bit. So, so, um, there's different ideas about what Shakespeare believed about marriage it it some would say he was part of a sort of protestant sort of you know the the idea of of com- consent companion companionability of, of love matches some would say that's what he was uh voting for uh but you can clearly see uh, for example with midsummer night's dream that that for all that these sort of lovers seem to have overthrown patriarchal authorities not choosing uh not choosing who 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 the sovereign or the or the father dictates they should choose choosing for themselves but some of them wind up very much married within their class choosing the kind of person their father or their mm-hmm. sovereign might have well have chosen for themselves there's sort of social stability is restored at the end of a midsummer night's dream through marriage which which has been the thing that's threatened to tear society to society apart but ultimately uh, it becomes a thing that seems to put everyone back together in their right place but we do also have in midsummer night's dream bottom the figure of bottom who is i say and he comes back actually at the end of my book he for me is Shakespeare's image of the true lover. He managed, for a start, if to be a really good lover, you have to be capable of being in the wrong and not, not too Puritan and not too, too self-righteous. He is laughable. Everybody laughs at him. So, so he's, uh, and this is a play that is saturated with uh, a kind of vocabulary about, about the fool and about love being a kind of madness, a kind of folly, a kind of, 
And he is capable of not imagining there's anything that should separate him from the queen of the fairies when he is a human ass. And so he has this amazing ability to travel between social, social classes and, to, and to, to insinuate something radical about what love and marriage could be as opposed to the way in which it currently is in, in the social world of Athens in, in, in that particular play. Uh, and I think that it really is the case that in Shakespeare, the comedies leave open the possibility of marriage as an institution that could find a way into the future. In the tragedies, we can see that uh, marriage is understood to be uh, something that cannot work without social sanction. So, uh, I mean, the our, our archetypal lovers are Adam, uh, not Adam and Eve. They aren't our archetypal lovers at all, actually. Our archetypal lovers are Romeo and Juliet, and our archetypal lovers are Romeo and Juliet, partly because their love has no social sanction. The world won't approve of it. And so they can't survive in that world. They simply can't survive in that world. So we see uh, in those plays and in the tragedies, as well as the comedies, that the extraordinary thing about marriage, I think I, I have a line somewhere in the book that if love whispers sweetly into your ear that you're your own person, and lovers, I think, are really thrive on the idea that they're originals in some way, that what's happening between them isn't a, a kind of... They're trying to escape the script very often, even as they repeat it very predictably. Uh, love wants to feel its originality. It wants to mm. feel a kind of connection to something very sort of primordial in itself. Marriage tells you otherwise. Marriage comes along and says, actually, there's a whole world that you that your relationship needs to enter into and survive in. And so the tragedies show that it takes more than two people to make a marriage. The world has to sort of enter into it. And the comedies in Shakespeare show, and I think in a really fascinating way, that comedy, for all it might seem uh, fantastical, you know, there's human asses and there's fairies and so on, is actually a kind of realist genre. Mm. Because the, the real question in comedy is what can work, actually? What can work in this world? Mm. Can these people find a way to enter this world in such a way that the world will accept them? which makes uh, romantic comedy such an extraordinary genre because we want to believe in romance as something larger than uh, uh, reality, cutting through reality. But if it's accepted, if it works, then reality has been altered by it. So it's a very mm. utopian kind of idea, mm. I think, in Shakespeare. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and and I, I just think, yeah. <laughs> um, as someone who is getting married in two months, thank you, and also... Um, Grew up with divorced parents. Um, I'm hesitant of marriage, but also excited. Um, do you have one piece of advice for me? Read the book. Yes. Yeah, I would buy a book for everyone coming to the wedding. <laughs> because, you know, they're your witnesses and they promise to uphold your... So, but, um, uh, but, um, uh, uh, sorry? From here, from this bookshop, yeah. not from Amazon, and, uh, and, but from this bookshop, there's many you can... Uh, but that's not my only advice. My other advice um, would be... My mother is a marriage uh, guidance... was a marriage guidance counsellor, and then she became what's called a couples therapist. But she's... I mean, she's... Mm. This was in... You know, this was a long, long time ago, uh, decades ago, but when it sort of started out... But she uh, said to me that um, 
A successful marriage is, is about being able to accept change in the other person. She told me that, I think, when I was pretty young. And I, I, I mean, I, the, the, clearly, when you're marrying somebody, they're going to change. And so that has to be what you're looking forward to. And that has to be what you have to work with. So mm. when they change, that's part of the contract. That's not a kind of rena- reneging on the contract. That's part of what you've uh, committed to. I would say mm. it's good advice, actually, to, to look forward to change to help the change happen in a way and um, and the other thing I would say is you need a sense of humor if you haven't got one I don't know how it works I just don't know I don't know I think you really really require one get one first I think you've got one I can see it I can see it but but I, I really think it I, I can't think how to do it otherwise yeah <laughs> well divorce sense of humor and uh, compassion and intelligence uh, is just packed in this book. So it's thank you for it. Thank you for being so generous to us and writing it. Thanks for listening. To find out more about London Review Bookshop events, visit londonreviewbookshop.co.uk forward slash events. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.